All right, I guess we can get started. Uh, I'm not used to starting on time, but I guess we'll start new things, new trends. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? All right, so we are continuing our study of the uh, Confession, Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, but before we start into uh, the chapters dealing with today, uh, I wanted to kind of touch on a couple broad aspects of the Confession before to, to kind of help uh, guide our uh, discussion today. So, although the Confession's laid out sequentially, right, we're on chapter, today we're doing chapters 19 and 20, right? Um, it's not laid out or set forth in order of importance, right? So uh, today, the uh, law of God is not the 19th most important doctrine that the Bible teaches on, right? Uh, we need to see the confession taken as a whole, right? So we need to see all the preceding chapters kind of giving us a foundation to be able to enter into a discussion <clears throat> of the law, right? Um, Secondly, this is a summary of what the Bible teaches concerning the law, right? We could spend multiple classes. There's obviously been, you know, book-length treatments on each of these subjects. Um, and so, since we're also dealing with these things, actually we're dealing with two chapters today in roughly 45 minutes, uh, this is going to be a summary of a summary, right? Or as I like to say, this is the Spark Notes version of the Cliff Notes version of what the Bible teaches concerning uh, the law and uh, Christian liberty. So, with that, though, uh, Rick, would you open us up in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, the confession. And we pray that uh, you would uh, use it to your glory today. Uh, we learn that uh, wisdom actually teaches us and give us uh, our heart. Great, thanks. Okay, so uh, first off, I do want to apologize. I did not, I kind of underestimated my uh, prep time, so I didn't have a chance to do an outline for you also, but hopefully I'll be clear enough that you can track along with me. Um, before we actually get into it, so again, uh, we're dealing with chapters 19 and 20 concerning the law of God, and then chapters 20 is uh, concerning uh, Christian liberty and freedom of conscience. Um, for, but first, what's the first thing that comes to mind when the law of God is mentioned? Like, and I'm looking for the honest answer. I'm not looking for the correct answer here. Well, yes, right? That's the first thing we all think of, right? So that's, that's what I thought of kind of when just kind of just think about it in general, right? So we think of it as what a bunch of uh, a list of rules and regulations, a bunch of sh thou shalt nots, right? Um, but uh, the law actually, it contains those things, right? But it's actually so much more. And so hopefully after, at the end of this class, we'll have a fuller view when we see uh, the nature in, of the law. It will help us to uh, have a fuller understanding to help us in our obligations to live out by its implications. Uh, chapter 19 of the Confession, uh, it's set forth in seven sections, uh, sections 1 and 2. Uh, talk about the giving of the law. Sections three to four about the uh, talks about the nature and types of the law, and sections five and seven kind of deal with the extent and application of the law. Um, I'll let me read sections. Uh, start up on sections one and two. I'll read those. Um, so sections one and two. Uh, God gave Adam a law as a covenant of works. He required Adam and all his descendants to obey this law individually, completely, perpetually, and in precise accordance with its provisions. 
God has promised life for keeping it and threatened death for disobeying it. And he gave man the power and ability to keep it. Section 2. After the, after the fall, this law continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and was given as such by God on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. Written on two tablets, the first four commandments established our obligations to God and the remaining six uh, our obligations to our human beings. Or to human beings, right? So again, so we see the Ten Commandments uh, listed, right? But again, it's, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, where, did, where, does, where does Paul, I mean, where does the confession start with its discussion of the law? What's that? Covenant works, right? So here we see the so we see the covenant works given at at the creation right of Adam. So and this is actually pre-fall, right? So we see two distinct givings of the law, right? We see the pre-fall giving of the law with the commandment of work, uh, covenant of works, and then we see a post-fall uh, giving of the law as uh, written in the uh, Ten Commandments. So both of these indicate our standing or our relationship with God, right? So in the covenant of works, right? What is a covenant? Or what's the, what does the covenant establish? Agreements, okay, yeah. But in a more general sense, what is it? Okay, contract includes how many parties? Two, right? Two people together. What's that? Okay, so is it not talking about a relationship, right? It's a, it's a right, because think about it. Any relationship that we have, has laws attached, right? Has rules and regulations attached, right? Those of you who are married, right? You took vows. You're also held to other standards, right? If one of your spouses uh, goes outside the bounds of uh, the rules of marriage concerning um, sexuality, sexuality or you know sexual relations outside, right? What's the what's the punishment, right? There's grounds for divorce, right? So there's we see in any relationship established, there's rules and regulations, and here we see that in the in the covenant of works, right? Promises of life for obedience, death for disobedience, right? <clears throat> Blessings and cursings, as it's written elsewhere, right? But where is this written down? Is it written down? Well, yes, it, it, it's, it's recorded for us in Genesis. But where is this covenant of works written down for us? Yes, right? It's written down. It's, it's, it's actually in the very makeup of who we are, right? As created being, we're created by a moral, personal God, right? And so, therefore, if we're created... Well, as uh, Genesis 1.26 says, in his image, right, we also, too, are moral agents. So the, the very nature of who we are uh, presupposes this law being established, right? So then again, now we skip forward post-fall. Adam's disobeyed, right? Uh, death has come. Now we see, instead of written on our hearts, now where, is this, where are the laws and regulations written? Stone tablets, right? So we go from written on our hearts to written in stone, or the heart, due to the hardness of our hearts, right? I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Uh, confession goes through, uh, obviously, a better tra- uh, treatment in, in catechism, talking about the uh, uh, implications of each of the commandments, right? I'm not going to deal with those too much because of time. Um, but the uh, confession here does state that, right, that the first four commandments deal with our duties to who? To God, right? And then the 5 through 10 deal with what? Yeah, right? Deals with our duties to our, uh, to our fellow man, right? To, uh, to the, so both, uh, the law, both of these laws then regulates or structures all relationship, right? There's no relationship that doesn't come with some form of law regulation, right? Where else do we see kind of this two, division of two 
um, the division of the two tables, where else do we see it kind of more positively uh, expressed? Right. Yeah, so we go from thou shalt not to love, right? Love your God uh, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, right? So, uh, again, both of those things, we see that what typifies it, either uh, the covenant of works in the pre-fall is uh, written on a heart dealing with the very nature and constitution of man, right? Uh, there's no necessity at that time for mediation, right? But then with, when sin comes, we see that there is a need, right? So we go for God has to more clearly uh, codify his law, written and write it down by his very finger on the tablets, right? So any comments or questions as far as dealing with the giving of the law? Do we see the... the uh, when it's given kind of deals with our state or our, how we were relating to God at that moment, right? Um, does that make sense? Okay. So we'll go on to sections three and four, and we're going to deal with the nature and the types of the law. Section three says, In addition to this law, ordinarily called the moral law, it pleased God to give the people of Israel, as a pre-Christian assembly of believers, ceremonial laws containing many typical ordinances, some of these ordinances pertain to worship and foreshadow of Christ, his grace, actions, sufferings, and the benefits to be had from believing in him. The rest of these ordinances contain various instructions about moral duties. All of these ceremonial laws are now nullified under the New, uh, under the New Testament. Section 4, God also gave the Israelites as a political body various judicial laws. These expired with the state of Israel and make no further obligation on people uh, on God's people than seems appropriate in contemporary legal codes. All right, so we have three types of law given, right? Moral, and what are the other two? Ceremonial, and what's the last one? Judicial or civil, right? Um, again, moral law is summarized in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, right? This is equals God's revealed will, right? This is in a sense, this is the law, right? Uh, as chapter 1 of the Confession says, dealing with the Holy Scriptures, it says, Therefore it pleased the Lord at different times and various ways to reveal himself and to declare that this revelation contains his will for the church. Now, that, so basically his self-revelation is the moral law, right? This, the Scriptures are, contain is the only rule for, uh, is the perfect rule for faith and practice, right? So, the, uh, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, he says what? The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Right? So we see that the, the law of God, the moral law, is, in a sense, his very nature. It's an expression, it's his self-revelation of his own nature. Right? So if that's the sense, then what's our obligation to keep it? Do you think that's done away with, right? No? Or is it still, are we still obligated to obey it? Well, Jesus himself said what about the law? Yeah, and he said, I'm not going to do away with the law, right? I'm going to fulfill it, right? So we see himself saying that he's not doing away with the law. So obviously because of, of the nature of the moral law, that it is still binding on um, on us, but so, but in contrast, though, we see uh, to the perpetual obligations of the moral law, we see that the ceremonial and the civil law 
just by their very nature, it is given in a very specific time and for a distinct purpose, are temporary in their operation, right? What was the purpose of the ceremonial law? Point to Christ, right? I mean, Hebrews 10 uh, says that, right? Let me read <clears throat> Hebrews 10.1. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Right? So this, the purpose of the ceremonial law is to point people to Christ, right? To his, uh, the person and work of Christ, Right? Christ says what? It's finished, right? We see e- even more uh, broadly, right, with the destruction of the temple, that, that this whole system is passed away, right? <clears throat> Same thing with the civil law, right? This was given to who? Israel, right? The nation of Israel at that time, right? But with the expiring of the, or the passing away of that nation, right, the, the civil laws itself have passed away, except when? The confession says, except where the general equity thereof applies. What does that mean? What's that? I don't know. <laughs> I think the one example I always that sticks in my mind is the is the is the old parapet around the roof, right? Where uh, you know back in the, in the uh, in that time, you know, you were had you were obligated by law to have a fence around your your roof when you're entertaining in case somebody a, a guest of yours might drink too much and maybe fall off, right? You were held liable to the safety of your, of, your, of your guest. So the general equity of that would apply in our case would be what? The fence around the pool, right? We're legally bound to have a fence around your pool, right, in case, you know, to safeguard the, uh, your guests or your family, right? So that's kind of where it's talking about. So these laws... Would the confession support seeing some other laws outside of Ten Commandments as moral? Well, I think if you if you break down each of those commandments, everything can probably be. Uh, again, the Ten Commandments are a summary statement. So I think if you look at the prohibitions and and vice versa, the uh, the commands in each of those each of those commands, probably some. It's, it, I can't think of anything that would fall outside of those. I speak like homosexuality, love your neighbor yourself, don't marry your sister. Those are not in the Ten Commandments. Uh, well, I mean, they're later in the law. Yeah. Do we, do we have to? I guess my point is, we can see the three types of laws, but do we have to draw a fence around the Ten Commandments themselves as the only moral law within the law? No, because I think, again, if, you, if you're looking at the, at the law as God's revealed will, then you're looking at all of Scripture basically as the moral law, in a sense. Right, so if if God has elsewhere in Scripture dealt with the issue of homosexuality or sex outside of marriage, then or you know anything else that you might want to call it that, then if the Bible's speaking to that, then then that itself would be uh, considered a law because God is holding us to that. The division into three categories is not very and That's the problem with it, and the great challenge of it is in terms of the civil law. Are, is, are elements of the civil law applicable today? And I'll let you read on your own hundreds of pages what the guys think it is or it isn't. But I do think the Ten Commandments is comprehensive enough, uh, especially in the last table regarding our relationship with one another, to, for example, um, don't commit adultery. You can get into all of what marriage is about. Through the lens, but as far as a codified Talmud, no, we don't have. Yeah, yeah. 
again. Um, yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, yes. Yeah, at that time, yeah. I mean, and well, well, yes. I mean, that'll kind of we'll, we'll kind of deal with that more in the sense of uh, Christian liberty. Uh, it's kind of more of a question of that. Um, so yes, I mean, obviously God has instituted. I mean, to jump ahead a little bit, God has instituted the, the state, so we are obligated and bound to obey it as long as uh, it doesn't violate uh, the law of God, right? Um, all right, so moving on, uh, sections five to seven. Uh, let's just read section five first. Uh, the moral law, however, does pertain to everyone, saved and unsaved, forever, not just with respect to its intent, but also in relationship to the authority of God, the creator who gave it. In the gospel, Christ does not in any way remove this obligation, but rather strengthens it. So here now we start to see the uh, extent in the application of, of the law, right? So uh, obviously the, mor the moral law by, nat by its very nature is the only one still binding upon us, right? Because again, if we see that the moral law is the very, it constitutes very nature or revealed will of God, right? Then the law is perfect, requiring perfect obedience and condemning the least sin or the least shortcoming as sin, right? And also, the law then is spiritual, right? And if it's spiritual, then it's respecting the thoughts, feelings, uh, motives, uh, and inward states of heart, as well as actions, as well as our actions, right? Uh, think about the Sermon on the Mount, right? Christ applied that, uh, took the same, the law that was already given that, the, that his hearers knew about, but then he applied it to a further extent, right? He, he extended its application to, to deal with the, actually the inward uh, state of the person, right? But then also, as far as application goes, it was, as we see in the Ten Commandments, right, we are not only bound to fulfill the law ourselves, but also to help others uh, to do so as far as we can, right? Uh, where do we see this applied in the New Testament? This fact that, right, the second table is our duty to, to others, to, to help others, uh, to love our neighbor, right? Do we not see that in the Great, uh, Great Commission, right? What is the Great Commission? Disciples, right? Nothing in the Ten Commandments says you have to love your neighbor. It just says you have to do this, this, and this. But those obligations are... are you can make the argument that... You know, the old covenant, you could you keep the first four commandments, keep the Sabbath, you know, don't swear, do this, and, 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 and hey, God, I hate you, but I'm going to do what you told me. And when Jesus came, Jesus laid down a standard that's much tougher because he required you to have a condition of your heart. No, I would say that even in the Ten Commandments, I think with those, with the second table, that you are held to a high standard. Now, nobody can to do all those things perfectly. And Jesus just sum has summarized it himself by saying that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Jesus and not only do you, can you not have adultery, you can't even think about it. Right, yeah. So he applied it to a further extent, but that those, those same things, though, uh, were held to the believers as well. I mean, nobody would, could... Um, yeah, I don't. It, the the extent is he 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 uh, fulfilled the extent or he extended its reach, but the the, the the implications were still there, summarizing the commandments. I don't that they, they they don't contradict one another. Um, the religious teachings of that day had externalized the law that they could reach. 
So they have brought right. the law down to just a bare external adherence. That was the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes. Jesus spiritual law, or taught the spirituality of the law. He, he said, you have heard it said, you, which you just quoted, uh, don't commit adultery, but whoever looks with lust in his heart on the woman. Well, that's what he's doing, is he is uh, showing the spiritual aspect of the law because of the context of that. Uh, that yeah. so, uh, thing is, what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, one strength, and what he said, love your neighbor as himself. He, he did not make up those two verses on the spot. Right. Those are direct quotations from the Old Testament that were given to Israel as law. Right. So it's not like Jesus was coming up with something. Right. He was drawing their attention back. Like, hey, remember these two verses? Yeah. Like, look at these two verses, and this is what permeates the rest of Right, exactly. And if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we're breaking the, if we break the first table, then we're not able to fulfill the second as well. Right? So... Um, so obviously, though, we obviously cannot perfectly keep the law, but right? Christ fulfills the law for us, right? Which, i.e., our justification. The Holy Spirit fulfills the law in us, right? Dealing with our sanctification, right? Um, but now we, we switch to, uh, or we move on to chapter, uh, section 6, and we start to see what the, uh, the uses of the law for, for both believer and non-believer, right? In section 6, we, say, we see, although true believers are not justified or condemned by the law as a covenant of works, the law is nevertheless very useful to them and to others. As a rule of life, it informs them of God's will and of their obligation to obey it. It also reveals to them the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, so that examining themselves from its point of view, they may become more convinced of the presence of sin in them, more humiliated on account of that sin, and hate the sin the more. Right? Thus they gain a better awareness of their need for Christ and for the perfection of his obedience. The prohibitions against sin in the law are also useful in restraining believers from pursuing the desires of their old nature, and the punishments for disobedience in the law show them what their sins deserve and what afflictions they may expect for them in this life. Even though they have been freed from the curse threatened in the law, the promises of the law similarly show them that God approves obedience and that blessings may be expected for obedience, although not as they're due from the law as a covenant of works. The fact that the law encourages doing good and discourages doing evil does not mean that a person who does good and refrains from evil is under the law and not under grace. All right, so a lot to unpack uh, there. Um, actually, let me just read chapter, uh, section 7 real quick. It's a, the final, it's a shorter section. None of these uses of the law are contrary to the grace of the gospel. They rather beautifully comply with it because the spirit of Christ subdues and enables the will of man to do voluntarily and cheerfully what the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. All right, so the, uh, in this section we see the uses of the law. For the unregenerate, right, it restrains his sinful behavior, right? Man is not as sinful as, uh, as they are could be, right? God has uh, restrained them. God warns them of the, of the implications of, of their sin and reveals uh, God to them. Uh, for the regenerate, right, it summarizes, it's a summary of God's will. It reveals the indwelling sin in our own hearts, right, in our ongoing need of Christ. It's, and it also discloses the glory of Christ and the beauty uh, of the gospel of grace, right? Um, what's the when teaching this, though, what, 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 like, what opposition does Paul get when, he's, when he talks about, um, talks about the law and grace? 
What's the common objection that Paul hears? Should we sin like Right, yeah. Well, if we're, under, if we're under grace now, right, wouldn't that be, we can do what we want, right? Can't we just do what we want, then uh, grace will abound all the more, right? Uh, but Paul obviously denies that, right? Because, again, think about it. If we think about it in the summary statement, right, with the loving, the God, loving God with all our heart, loving our neighbor as ourselves, to deny that Christians are obligated to keep the law it's to deny, to deny that Christians are to love God and to love our neighbors, right? So if you put it in that sense, it makes no sense, right? As a Christian, you're not to love God and you're not to love your neighbor? Well, for, you know, if that's, that, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so in, in this section, obviously shows that the law in the believer's life doesn't contradict the gospel, but actually fulfills it, right? Um, how do we show love for God? Well, it, yeah, keeping his commandments. We're doing, you know, so if we want to love God and, kind of, and fulfill the first table of the law, we would have to show it by exercising the second table, right? Our duty to man, right? We show our love for God by showing our love for our neighbor, right? And Jesus said, if a man loves me, he Right, exactly. And that's, those are the main commandments, right? Exactly. So the the one will follow the other, right? Any. So again, if we keep in mind, not the the true nature of the law, not that it's just a bunch of rules and regulations, not what we should do or shouldn't do, what we can and cannot do, right? But if we understand the law as God's revealed will, that it's rooted in the changeless nature of God, you know, then we should understand the extent and its application, right? That it applies to all people at all times, in all places, right? There's no way we can escape it. We can no more escape God's presence than we can to escape the, our duty uh, to keep the law, right? But again, what, we're, not, we're not keeping the law to, to sanctify ourselves, or we're not trying to keep the law, or we know we can't keep the law fully, right? We're, we're dependent upon the grace of God in order to have a, an ability to, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And, God, and our neighbor as ourselves. Any comments on the the law before we move on any questions comments testimonials it seems the um so many verses like um you know what will be edifying what what is what is good for you what is good for your neighbor what displays the glory of god versus a checklist or something that you try to go through or looking for some loophole or you know it's some of it is just a revelation of our own hearts and attitudes in the end, if you love God, He will fulfill you. It's, it's not the other way around. It's not trying to get through the checklist to love God and prove it. Right. Um, you know, the, the law reveals our hearts, and so we, we deal with it. And um, yeah. Yeah, again, again it goes, always goes back to how we're relating uh, to him yeah, through that, right? Because, again, if we're seeing this as God, uh, as the scriptures, as his revealed will, then we're understanding then uh, what we're, you know, that it's not about uh, what we can get away with, what we can, uh, what can slide, where we can kind of mince our words here. No, it's a full commitment, right? Because we understand what Christ has done in order to uh, have us. Make- um, I read something that obedience is not a condition of like, being saved, but a characteristic of being saved. Right. Not like before that. Right, exactly, right? We don't, uh, it's not the, the equation, right? It's not... Uh, we obey, therefore we're accepted by God, right? We're accepted by God, we're saved, and then we're freed to uh, 
to obey. With that, kind of a good segue to kind of dealing with Christian liberty and freedom of conscience, right? When we're talking about liberty, though, we're not talking about uh, liberty in general, right? We, uh, confession dealt with in Chapter 9, the kind of the free will aspect. So we're not kind of talking about that. We're specifically talking about uh, Christian freedom, right? And the... Uh, and liberty and freedom of conscience, right? So, um, sorry, I can't read my writing. Yes, okay. Uh, so in this uh, chapter, we see that it talks about what we are freed from and what we're freed to. Uh, we talk about uh, who has authority over our conscience and what that frees us from. It also talks about the true purpose of freedom, and then also, obviously, the applications and responsibilities due to our uh, Christian liberty. So... Uh, so in chapter 20, concerning Christian freedom and freedom of conscience, uh, Christ has, uh, chapter, uh, section 1, Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel freedom from the guilt of sin, from the condemning wrath of God, and from the curse of the moral law. He has also freed from them the evil, uh, from the evil world we live in, from the enslavement to Satan, and from the dominion of sin, the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and, and from the everlasting damnation. In Christ, uh, believers have free access to God and can obey him not out of slavish fear, but with a childlike love and a willing mind. All these freedoms were also held by believers under the law. However, under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians has been enlarged to include freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. Uh, Christians also have a greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and a fuller gift of the Spirit of God than believers ordinarily had under the law. So, uh, in a nutshell, right, this freedom that Christ has purchased for us under the gospel is frees us from the dominion of sin, right? It frees us from the guilt of sin, uh, the bondage of sin as our inherent principle of our nature, right? Bondage to Satan and the coercive influence of the uh, of the present evil world. It saves us from the frees us from the evil of afflictions and the sting of death the victory of the grave, everlasting damnation. Um, but what does it free us to? Love. Love, yes. Right? It restores uh, the inward, our inward ability, right, to will and to do God's uh, good pleasure. And, from, and freedom fr- frees us from uh, the disabilities brought upon the sinner by our sin, right? Uh, so we basically go from servants of Satan to sin to what servants of God, right? We're going from one yoke to another, but one's, uh, Christ is obviously... Uh, light, as he he called it, right? What else does this free us from? So, I mean, obviously, that's the the major one, right? It gives us a new ability to um, to love God, right? It gives us the power, right, by uh, freeing us from the guilt of sin and the dominion of sin to uh, to love Him. Uh, but it also talks about in this section that the uh, New Testament believer has a greater freedom than those of the early uh, uh, those of the Jewish church of and, and what's that freed us from? What's the distinction? Ceremonial. Right, the ceremonial law, right? And then why is that? Because right, we have, the, we have the fullness of the revelation of Christ now, right? So this gives us, uh, so we're freed from the ceremonial law, but then we're freed to uh, greater access or boldness in approaching God and a fuller uh, communication of God's spirit, right? But then we go on to section two. What, first off, what is conscience? And then uh, Jiminy Cricket's not the right answer, but uh, what? Anybody give me a definition of conscience? Uh, 
the inner sense of right and wrong. Yeah. God is placed in the non-hearts. That's very good, yeah. Um, the dictionary definition would be the sense of moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character, together with the feeling of obligation to do right or to do good. So, yeah. Um, section 2 of, the, of this chapter, chapter 20, says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in any way contrary to or different from his word in matters of faith or worship. And so, believing any such teachings or obeying any such commandments of men for conscience' sake, actually betrays true freedom of conscience. Requiring implicit or absolute blind obedience also destroys freedom of conscience as well as the free use of reason. Um, So, God alone, it says, is Lord of the conscience. So, this frees us from what? Frees us from the doctrines and commandments of men, right? Frees us from uh, rules and regulations that are imposed by man. Again, this is in in terms of worship, i.e., we're talking about like the Pharisaical laws, man-made laws that regulated the worship, right? Um, And it says that even to to believe and to uh, to obey these doctrines of men, right? That if obviously if they're contrary to uh, God's word is sin, and it's actually betraying your Christian liberty, right? So you're actually putting yourself under a yoke by... And guys, think about it. All of these commandments of men, right, they actually reduce God's law, right? It's, it's, it's it, like, as, as Tim said, it's lowering the bar so we can kind of feel like we can reach it, right? So uh, to put yourself under that is betraying the, 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 the freedom that Christ has actually purchased for you, right? And also... Um, Requiring blind obedience is also a betrayal, right? To say just you got to believe this without uh, investigating it, without questioning it, without searching the scriptures for whether it's true or not, right? This is also uh, a betrayal of our freedom or our conscience, right? One of the biggest freedoms, though, as I think about it, because we don't have to make a pilgrimage to listen to it. We don't have to give you a certain Right, exactly. Yeah, we don't have to pray in a certain direction, right? Yeah. Discussing your conscience is that people will say, well, I think this is right, or I don't see anything wrong with this. Uh, and so if you just go off of the corrupt history of the conscience alone and discard everything else, you can easily go astray. The art is wicked. And the oh, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, we'll talk about... Uh, the, the actual written codified law... Is sort of that, like, hey, let me recheck this and recalibrate my conscience right. to see if it lines up. No, oh, it doesn't. Okay, I have to recheck myself because I know that God's law is perfect. Right. I know that my heart is sinful and I can recalibrate. Exactly, and then, hence that's why we're we're studying Christian liberty after we're dealt with dealing with the law of God, right? I mean, there's sense to that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of like in the context of the, <coughs> the, 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 the divines, you know. Mm-hmm. Them are in response to the Roman True. Church, you know. Um, it's reminded of my, my mother-in-law who makes a comment who says something like, um, "I haven't been to confession in over a year," and I think what a burden, you know. Like, right. You know, this chapter here addresses that. Yeah. My conscience is clean. I yeah. Right, just in Christ, you know, and... 
and you have well, you have free access to them anyways, as where where you're sitting. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's a system that is burdensome, and you know, these sort of liberties is what we're we're dealing with. But, right. You know, they're addressing those sort of uh, doctrines, <coughs> teachings that are contrary to you know the liberty that, that Christ delivers to us. Right. Okay, I, have, I wasn't going to do it, but now I have to, just because it shows my true nature. Um, I have to refer back to, uh, to the Avengers. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, the scene, uh, if you guys have seen it, if you haven't, go check it out, uh, where Loki's kind of, uh, he's, he has his little monologue when he's kind of trying to take over. He's telling these, you know, these humans, you know, to him, he's, he's beneath that. He's, you know, godlike, right? And he's, he talks about, you know, these people have a desire to be ruled, right? And so he's not really, he's not doing anything but giving them what they want, right? He's coming down to rule them because that's what we all desire, right? And so this kind of shows us, right? In some ways, we're, we, we want to be ruled by something. Either, <laughs> but either we're going to be ruled by God's law or we're going to be ruled by the doctrine and commandments of men, right? So, but either way, we, we, we have this desire, this inward uh, desire to be subjugated in some ways, right? But, we, the, but the proper way is... Or, not just the proper, but the, the more freeing, right, is, is, is to, to obey the law of God, right, and to, to serve him. That's true liberty. Um, so the uh, section three going on says, those who practice any sin or nourish any sinful desire on the pretext of Christian liberty destroy the whole purpose of Christian freedom, which is that having been rescued out of the hands of our enemy, we might serve the Lord without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Right. So the, the true purpose of Christian liberty is to serve the Lord without fear. Right. And in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Um, so in this instance, we talk about not confusing uh, liberty with license. Right. In First uh, Peter two, First Peter two, uh, 16. It says, uh, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Right. So here, we can't confuse liberty with license, right? Um, J.A. Williamson said, uh, An inner desire and ability to strive to fulfill the law of God, that is true liberty. The and the desire and will to do as we please, irrespective of the law, is license and it is sin, right? So inner desire to ability, an inner desire and ability to strive to um, fulfill the law of God, right, that's what Christian liberty is, right? It's freeing us up to be able to do that by God's grace, right? Uh, but the desire to do, to act as we want, irrespective of the law, that's license, right? So that, and that is sin, right? That is the distinction um, there. Um, Christian liberty, though, uh, so when we're kind of dealing with the extent of it, right, it's not absolute. It has its distinct ends and limits, right? Uh, let me... Read chapter, I mean, section four. This is the final section of this chapter. It says, God intends that the authorities he has ordained on earth and the freedom Christ has purchased should not destroy but mutually uphold and preserve each other. And so those who oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of power, whether civil or ecclesiastical, on the pretext of Christian freedom are actually resisting God. The support, promotion, or practice of such opposition, which contradicts natural understanding 
or the known principles of Christianity on matters of faith, worship, and associations, which denies the power of godliness or which disrupts the peace and unity among believers, may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the church. Um, So, again, Christian liberty is not absolute. It does have its distinct ends and limits, right? Um, uh, A.A. Hodge said, said, it is uh, its end... Uh, is that every person without hindrance of his fellow man should have opportunity to serve God according to his will, right? So we see that there's two limit, two kinds of limits placed upon our liberty. First one is uh, the authority of God, right? He's the Lord of the conscience, right? We're responsible only in his authority, right? The second one is the uh, the trickier one, right? This is the equal liberties and rights of our fellow man with whom we dwell in organized societies, right? So roughly, I mean, society can be organized in two categories. At least the confession deals with two categories. What are the two categories of organized society? Church is one. Yeah, civil or the state, right? So uh, church and state. But who has established the church? Christ? Right, God has, right? Who has established the state? God has too, right? So we're... By nature of that, right, we're held to um, obedience, right, to legitimate authorities if they're acting within their rightful spheres, right? It's proper to do so, right, because God has ordained it or has established it, right? The church has right to exercise discipline, but what is the standard that they are to use? God's word, right? I mean, uh, what, would, what would the Roman church say is the standard for which they're to rule? The church itself, right? I mean, the church is the standard. How? I mean, do we see the inherent danger in that, right? Right. So now they're saying basically the church has a higher standing than the Bible, right? Um, no, right? It's held to a higher standard, right? Uh, really, actually, it's the highest standard, right? It's God's word, the perfect revealed will of God, right? Um, J.I. Williams, Williams just said, um, there is a pope in every man's heart. We are all tempted uh, to think that we could improve our fellow Christians if we had charge of their conscience, right? I, it's kind of true, right? I mean, <laughs> we totally could, we, we're always thinking that, right? This is kind of goes scripturally speaking of the plank eye, right? You know, we, we need to remove the log in our own eye before we start to deal with the speck that's in our brothers. But that's what we do, right? So scripture requires actually the reverse of that, right? It says uh, that we should have charity towards others and carefulness in our own use of our own liberty, right? So we should be charitable to others, but we should have, uh, we should be, we should be uh, using the utmost carefulness in our, the use of our own liberty, right? Um, Obviously, uh, Romans chapter, what, 14, what deals with kind of the weaker brother, stronger brother. You know, uh, we won't get too much into that. Um, suffice it to say that we all at one point or another, probably in the same day, are the weaker brother and the stronger brother, right? And that's the rub, right? Understanding when, on what side we fall on, right? And, uh, but if we're living by grace, seeing our constant need for Christ, then we're, hopefully we'll minimize our uh, popery in our own hearts, right? Um, any comments before we close? Almost to time. So, as we see both in the law, as, you know, summed up as far as God's revealed will uh, in his nature, right? And Christian liberty, 
and conscience, right? Our understanding of their uh, implications and effects not only affects not only ourselves, uh, but emphasize our resp- responsibilities to our fellow man, right? Uh, and even more pointedly, right, to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're never a law unto ourselves, and we are never freed from loving God uh, with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, or our neighbors ourselves, right? It's, everything it goes back to our relationships and guiding and, and regulating our relationships. How do we, first off, starting up by our standing with our, how, how we relate to God will dictate how we relate to one another, or should dictate how we relate to one another, right? If we love God, then we'll show it by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Um, that's pretty much all I got. Any questions? Not that I can answer them, but uh, going back to the covenant, covenant of works, uh, and was it applicable just to Adam being our federal head, or was it applicable to all of humanity? Well, yeah, I mean, it was applicable to all of us because we were all because he is our federal head, right? Uh, Romans talks about him being uh, Christ being the second Adam fulfilling the terms of the covenant, right? So again, it's not, we can never keep the law. That's, that's obvious, right? And Romans, you know, three talks about that or, you know, but it's, it's Christ fulfilling it on our behalf as our second Adam, as our second covenant head, right? That deals with it. So again, it goes back to how we relate to the law, right? Either we're, or how we relate to God, either we're relating to him as a judge, right? Dealing and, and bearing the weight of the covenant of works, or we're dealing with him as, you know, adopted children as our father who has graciously given, uh, has, uh, his son has given us his righteousness and we can stand before him, right? So it's all about where we uh, fall in relation to him. Does that make sense? And uh, Charles Hodge gives a real good uh, explanation on the righteousness of well, first of all, every man, every man is required to satisfy the demands of the law, which would be perfect obedience, and if they sin, pay the penalty. Right. And the righteousness of Christ is made up of those two, which is perfect obedience. And would that be to the moral law? Yeah. Right? Yeah, of course. He made satisfaction to divide justice by suffering the penalty, which we should Right. Right, exactly. So then it's just Exactly, right. Exactly, right. He fulfills the law uh, for us, right? And then the Holy Spirit fulfills it in us, right? By sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of His Son. Right. Anybody else? All right. Well, I guess we'll let's pray and we can head to worship. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for revealing yourself to us in your word. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would have a higher view uh, of your word, of your law to be like David and to, to have that mindset of loving you, uh, loving the law and to um, understand what uh, that means and what uh, the freedom that you've purchased for us and how that can free us up to, uh, to love you and to follow, to follow you without the constraints of the law and of the burden of that. May you free us up to, to love you now as we go to worship you, to see your true worth and to give back praise that you only uh, deserve. Uh, we pray that that would also foster a greater love for one another and that it, that would show in how we to live and move and have our being. For we pray all this in Christ's name.